Time has produced some of the most incredible humans to walk the face of this planet we call home. People who've endured the most harrowing ordeals, pushing their body to the extreme. Whether it's plane crashes, abduction, jungle survival, or even medical anomalies, we explore them all. Who are these people? What happened? Where are they now? Join us to find out. Not me, not today podcast. Hey everyone, it's Lucia and Kenny here, and welcome to another episode of Not Me, Not Today podcast. Hello, and hello to everyone wherever you are in the world. We just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode. We're so glad you enjoyed it. It was also really cool to hear from you guys, so thank you for your kind words and messages. This just leaves me with one question to ask, and I know it's on everybody's mind. Leisha, what's the story? Today's episode is about Eduardo and Jane Valseca. It involves kidnap and ransom. There's also been a relatively recent update on this that I felt brought a really interesting conclusion to the story. This edition of Not Me, Not Today contains some violence, so I do want to give an advanced warning. Naturally, some survivor stories are going to be more brutal than others, so I will give a warning before each story as to the potential triggering content we're about to cover. I don't dive into a huge amount of graphic violence in this one, but I'm giving a heads up to the people who would like to skip these ones and focus on the against the element type survival stories. This is going to be a wild ride, so strap in. That was a fair enough warning. Let's get right into this. Jane Rager was born in Silver Springs, Maryland in 1966. That's spelled J-A-Y-N-E, and it'll be an important detail in this story. She was a child actor and starred in commercials. She continued into adulthood doing predominantly commercials and some soap operas, and she was in one film, Stella, with Bette Midler, but as a speaking extra. Eduardo Valsega was 18 years older than her, an art dealer and the grandson of an ex-newspaper empire baron. The business had closed long ago and there was no large inheritance. The only thing that Eduardo had been left with was an old train car. The name, however, was synonymous with wealth, business and power. Eduardo had been married once before and had two children from a previous marriage. However, he was no longer married when he met Jane in the phone booth of a car park of a restaurant in Bethesda, Maryland in 1992. They instantly fell in love. Eduardo was a passionate man and swept Jane off her feet. A quote from Jane was, We were madly in love and could never even imagine being apart from each other for a second. They married in 1994 and moved to a large family ranch in San Miguel de Allende in central Mexico. The place they moved to was a paradise in their own words. They had a ranch filled with horses, donkeys, Irish wolfhounds, rabbits and three children, Fernando, Emiliano and Naya. Again, I will include some photos on our Facebook and Instagram of this ranch if you wanted to check them out. This looks like a really cool place to grow up. It's like the secret garden set in Mexico. It's a dream of a place. Sunshine, a thousand acres of land, fountains in the gardens, romantic reddish coloured brick walls covered in ivy or creeping plants and cactus gardens. They even had a train track on the property. They didn't have any video games. They just had nature and outdoor activities. Eduardo showed Jane the train card he'd been left. Jane described in an interview that he brought her to the train cart and a man in a white tuxedo with gloves came out with a silver tray of drinks. They subsequently rode it to their ranch in San Miguel and there were some clips of a home movie they'd made while they were all on the train riding it to the family ranch. Jane and Eduardo were lovely, passionate, hardworking people who decided to open up their own school after struggling to find a suitable one nearby. They established a Waldorf school with some other parents. Jane worked in the school and it was her major passion. 
Eduardo had a slot as a panelist on a local TV show. What is a Waldorf school? So I hadn't a clue either what a Waldorf school was. It's an education based on Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Anthroposophy. Which is what? <laughs> well, apparently they strive to develop people's intellectual, artistic, practical skills in an integrated and holistic manner, emphasizing art and nature in its curriculum. Mm. It was built on the ranch just a quarter mile from the house. An average day for the Valsecas was dropping the kids to school, even though on occasion their son would ride one of the donkeys to school, which is the most Mexican thing ever, and I love it. That's so cool. Jane would tend to the animals and the horses, and they also bred Irish wolfhounds. I saw Jane mention in one interview that when the kids were small, um, they wanted to take the puppies in for show and tell because it was super exciting. Um, but the puppies were too young, so she wouldn't really let them. But they had loads of friends, and they were really involved in the community. Jane learned and spoke perfect Spanish, as did the children, so they were very much included and known. Life was pretty perfect, was another quote I found from Jane. On the day of June 13th, 2007, it started out as a pretty typical morning. They dropped the kids to school in their family jeep a quarter of a mile from the ranch. It was a pretty rural road, barely two cars wide, no tarmac, red bumpy dirt road with sparse plants lining the sides and up the middle, tire tracks worn into the dirt. They were singing songs on the way and pulled into the car park. When they arrived, Jane noticed that there was a small compact car that she hadn't seen before and there was a man sitting inside with a khaki-coloured fisherman's hat and glasses. Jane walked the children indoors and actually asked at reception if they knew who the man in the car was and if he was being helped. The staff said they didn't know who he was but he could just be waiting for someone. Jane said that she thought nothing more of it and when she left to return to her car, she caught his eye and smiled at him. He smiled back and she hopped into her car and they went to return to the house. Almost instantly, Jane and Eduardo noticed the man in the compact car pull out behind them and start to follow their car. Which was pretty weird because it just leads back to their house. So they sped up and so did he. A pickup truck pulled out and drove alongside them. The compact car peeled away and took a parallel side road. Now they're freaking out and driving quickly up their lane, hoping to make it back to the house, but the compact car pulled out in front of them where the lanes rejoined and slammed on the brakes. Oh my God, what is going on? Eduardo jammed his foot in the brakes and almost instantly the car from behind smashed into the back of them, pinning them between the two cars. Trapped. A man got out, came towards them with a hammer in one hand and a gun in the other. He hit Eduardo in the face with the hammer after smashing the window. Eduardo screamed, which terrified Jane. A second man tore Jane from the car. She reached out to steady herself, cutting her hand on the barbed wire fence that ran along the side of the road. The first thing she said was, please don't kill me, I have three children. The masked armed men ripped Eduardo out of the jeep, then threw them both into the back of a waiting SUV in front. Men that were waiting inside the SUV put pillowcases over their heads and tightly bound their wrists and ankles with duct tape. Can we just take a moment to imagine this? What would be going through your mind? Oh, I just couldn't fathom it. Ooh. Well, Edward was blood spattered and hysterical in the back on Jane's lap. This was starting to really piss off the captors and they threatened him that if he didn't shut up, they were going to give him another one. She could feel the blood running down his arm and could hear him but couldn't see anything because like Eduardo, she had a sack over her head. She didn't know where on earth they were going, so she tried to remember the turns that they took. Also a wild fact here, but their son Emiliano was going on a school trip that day and said that the bus that they were on was behind a jeep that drove wildly in front of them and screeched out, taking a turn onto a larger road. 
At the time, he had no idea that it contained his abducted parents and just thought it was some crazy, reckless driver. That's so crazy. I know. Well, eventually, they stopped the car and the door opened and Eduardo was yanked out of the car. Jane lifted the pillowcase just in time to see a car that contained Eduardo speed off. She was bound in the car. She threw herself over the seat onto the footwell and opened up the door. She got out and hopped in her flip-flops to the highway. An elderly man stopped to help, but only had a machete and no phone. As you do. (laughs) So then she tried to flag down someone else with a phone to call the police, but found that no one would stop, and in fact they sped up. I was just thinking then, why wouldn't anyone help her? But you can't neglect the fact that she was there at the side of the road, battered, bloodied and bound. Yeah. She was also standing with a man who happened to be wielding a machete. That would be quite the sight for anyone passing by. <laughs> well, to be honest, I can't say I'd stop either, really. I'd probably also speed up and get my butt out of there. <laughs> anyway, at a sheer desperation, she stepped out in front of an oncoming bus and put her hands up as if she was praying, and the bus stopped. There was no cell phone on the bus, so the driver flagged down a taxi driver who eventually called the police. The police took Jane back to the place where it happened into the car that she'd escaped. There on the ground was a letter. The letter was addressed to Senora Jane with a Y, which she found very unnerving because she said that nobody spelled her name correctly. Hmm. Now, as someone with a name whose spelling is not straightforward, I cannot imagine how unnerving it would be if someone had spelt it correctly. It gave me chills the first time I read about it. Inside that letter was a ransom note. It also contained an email address and a password. The letter instructed Jane to go home and await their next message. The police took her statement and she was pretty shaken, but she explained to them what had happened. They didn't seem too shocked as it's not rare for abductions to happen in the area, but they told her to just go home and wait for further information and contact. Jane felt a little dismayed at being told to go home with little interaction with the police. However, she had three children at school that she was soon going to have to collect. I can't imagine how either of them felt. What happened to Eduardo then? Ludwater was taken to an unknown location, stripped and put into a box with a singular light bulb. It was 70 inches high, 20 inches wide and 80 inches long. There was a pipe pumping air in one side and another pipe extracting it, like a scavenging system if there's any medical people out there. There was a moving camera in one corner and two speakers in the opposing corners. These speakers blared mariachi music in a continuous loop the whole time he was in the box. The music was so loud that he lost 15% of his hearing in his right ear. Just for that extra layer of torture. Well, Eduardo was fed just enough water and food to keep him alive. He suffered daily beatings and he was not allowed to talk. He was given a bucket to urinate and defecate into. In one interview, he said that the music would rarely stop playing. They played the music to make sure he could not hear their voices or what they were saying. They would write him notes telling him that Jane didn't care about him and that she'd moved a man into the house. The physical toll that would take on someone with the added psychological torment. And let's be real here, the thoughts in your head would be torment enough. Right? Well, Eduardo said the beatings and torture were so bad that he wished to die. However, he had nothing to kill himself with, so he was helpless in this prison. Jane was advised by the police that she was going to have to wait, which was frustrating. She figured since it had just happened, they would be all over it. It would be treated as in progress, there would be amber type alerts, and every police car would be out looking for him, and it would be over in just a few hours. But that's not how it worked, and she struggled to comprehend why. Which, to be honest, I struggled to comprehend too. Can you imagine how insanely frustrating that would be? You've just had your husband kidnapped. You've got some information on one car and the person involved and a letter and you've gotten the police there pretty darn quickly. As far as you're concerned, your husband is only a few miles away and maybe still in the car 
on the roads, yet police are like, go home and wait it out. It must be so common for them that they just follow the procedure though and hope for the best. I'd want to hijack a car and go searching for him. Yeah. Even though I know it'd be futile, the rage and helplessness and frustration that must have been building up inside of him actually is unimaginable. Did they have any initial leads or anything? Police had some idea of who had done this, but not necessarily specific people. A group called the EPR. They were a rogue militia group that abducted people for ransom. The police told Jane that this wasn't something that was going to be done quickly. They warned her that it could be weeks, if not months, before she would get her husband back. If she got him back. I read that over like 5,000 people disappeared in Mexico in 2019 alone and they were never found. Whoa. You can appreciate this is like not an out of the ordinary case for the police. What were Jane's options? Well, in Mexico for this type of incident, there's three options. You can allow local police to do it. You can try to get the equivalent of the FBI involved, which are known as the AFI in Mexico, or you can go private. Jane chose to go private initially, and whilst at the crime scene, she called a private consultant who specialised in kidnappings and ransom negotiations, but this came at a hefty price. When she called private companies, they all had the right questions and seemed far more interested than the police. They would ask things like, how many vehicles were involved? What did they say? Can you describe the people? What did their guns look like? Once she gave them the information, they said it was a sophisticated operation and it was going to be expensive. It was far more than she could afford. Jane decided to turn to the AFI for help. They told her to go home and await further contact from them. This was going to be a waiting game. Jane, in shock, returned to her home with a police officer. When Jane was home, she opened up the letter with her name on it. It contained the email address and password, and it had instructions to log on to the email with the encrypted password and wait for further information and instruction. She finally had to collect her kids from school. She didn't really want to tell her children that their father had been kidnapped, so she tried to keep it a secret and say that he was away on a business trip. That'd be so tough, so alone. Well, their, Fernando, their eldest son, was 12. Jane knew that she couldn't keep it from him and would actually need him now to confide in and step up to help wherever possible. So she told him the truth and told him to keep it a secret from Emiliano and Naya and was sworn to absolute secrecy to everyone. A few months later, she had no choice but to let her other children know about their father's abduction, but they were also sworn to absolute secrecy. She called her mother, also named Jane, and told her what happened, and her mother dropped everything to pack a suitcase and be with her daughter. Naya said that she struggled to even wrap her head around it when she was told. She was only six years old and didn't even know what kidnapped was. They had to explain to her that bad guys stole her dad. Jane awaited the arrival of the AFI agent that was supposed to be sent to her house. She got a call at 3am from a man asking to be collected from the bus station. When she got there, a young slim man in his early 20s greeted her in a t-shirt, a baseball cap and glasses. She asked him if he was even a police officer or if he had a gun. He was a police officer, but no, he did not have a gun. She was dumbfounded that after all of this, they sent her some kid without a gun and a car to protect her and her family and lead up her husband's investigation and negotiation. After they got back to the house though, she expressed her dismay and annoyance and the officer said to her that if someone's watching the house, to have a big gun-toting police officer with a squad car is probably not what you want. Very smart move by them there. It makes total sense, doesn't it? Yeah, but initially you would think, what is going on? And how is this young, unarmed man going to help me? <laughs> he set up a space in the house where he could see everything that was going on there. He was older than he looked and experienced. After going over the information Jane gave, he was almost entirely convinced this was the workings of the group called the EPR. And the outcome wasn't going to be great. 
He braced it that this was not going to be over quickly, but would be months, if not longer. So naturally, you're going to notice if someone disappears, and there are some people you're going to have to inform. Eduardo was a common face on TV who just one day disappeared. They reported nothing. However, this was an order from the AFI in case it was to anger the captors and put Eduardo in danger. Ah, uh, that's another movie you would think is so weird initially and also strange, but it makes complete sense at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Jane was checking her email constantly, looking out for some hope and sign that Eduardo would be alive and any clue as to how she might find him. Five agonizing days passed before she finally received an email. It was a ransom email demanding the amount of $8 million. If she did not pay, they would torture or kill him. She was not to reply to the email, but to reply via adverts in the newspaper section. It had to be in code. God, like a Thomas Harris book. Exactly like that. She gave an example of the code they used. The main way they communicated with the captors was by using missing dog adverts and stuff in the local papers. They couldn't put out any more information and would just have to wait for the responses to come via email or coded replies in the newspaper. Jane didn't have that money. Even the property, which would have sold for significantly less than $8 million, was in Eduardo's name, and she couldn't sell it even if she wanted to. If they did want the money, they'd pretty much taken the wrong Valsega. She sold everything she could in her name and that she had access to. The horses, sheep, machinery, everything. Eventually, the kidnappers realized that she had no access to the money and property, so they sent her an email to, with a collection point for the parcel. Jane was terrified it was going to be Eduardo's fingers or body parts. They sent a man to collect it, and it contained blank signed IOU checks with Eduardo's signature. This would enable Jane to ask local businesses for loans. But they were suspicious and wouldn't lend her the money. Remember, she's trying to keep Eduardo's kidnapping a secret. Jane would receive letters from her husband begging for her to pay the ransom money, saying he was being tortured and couldn't take it any longer. He wondered if she even loved him at all. Each letter was like a dagger to her heart. The officer told her that the letters were not real and they were only a way to torment her mentally, break her down emotionally into giving them the money as soon as possible. They also sent her photos of him being beaten. Pictures I will also share on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Check those out, but they are graphic, so please be warned. Months went by and the threats got even worse. Jane received a message saying that the kidnappers had had enough and they were going to shoot Eduardo. They sent her a picture of Eduardo, naked on the floor, in a fetal position, with a gunshot wound to the leg, and that day's newspaper on top of him. Eduardo described that day as being hauled out of the box that he was being kept in, and having his eyes duct taped shut. They told him they were going to shoot him, then they shot him in the left leg, placed that day's newspaper on him, and took a photo. The pain was like the bones exploded and tried to come out from the inside, he said in an episode of Dateline. Also, another side note on the story, Fernando, their 12-year-old son, broke into Jane's email and read the emails and saw the pictures. He wanted to see what she was hiding and wanted to know, but wished he'd never looked. That would scar you for life. Definitely. The police officer that stayed with them throughout this whole ordeal coached her through it, and in the evenings they would prepare responses in the case of phone calls. He kept a whiteboard with pre-written responses on it close by in case the phone call ever happened. Did they ever call? Four months into this, they did. One day, Jane received a phone call. She'd been preparing for this moment for weeks. However, she'd been preparing herself mentally for a conversation with her husband's captors. What Jane was not prepared for was for her husband to be demanding and pleading with her to pay the ransom money. Luckily, the police officer was by Jane's side and coached her through the whole traumatic ordeal, encouraging her to read through the pre-written script. She mentioned that it was clear that he was reading some sort of script himself, as his tone wasn't normal and he sounded stiff. She said they'd both finished reading their scripts 
And then she said, I love you. He said, I love you too. And immediately they cut the call after he responded. She said his I love you reply made his character change and you could tell that that was really him. Jane started to frantically try and raise the funds, but the $25,000 she had managed to raise wasn't even close enough and sure as heck wasn't happening soon enough. The captors, growing more frustrated by their demands not being met, sent her another letter and photo of Eduardo with another gunshot wound, this one to his left arm. On top of being stuck in a box and being kept there, this guy must be losing the will to live right now, especially with his gunshot injuries and the amount of time he's been there up until this Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Well, Jane was still desperately trying to gather the money, raise her kids and work because she had bills to pay and children she had to feed. And she was trying to get as much money as she could to try to get her husband out of this absolute nightmare. Jane was also flying to the States for tests because she just discovered she had breast cancer. Oh my God, poor Jane. That's awful. Emiliano came to her and gave her his piggy bank and said that she could have all of his money if it helped to get his dad back. Oh, that must have been really uplifting to have your 12-year-old be so positive about it and try to help, but just break your heart at the same time, wouldn't it? 100%. Other people had given up hope and would come up to Jane to express their condolences like he was dead and speak about him in the past tense. So hard to deal with. The kids would hear stories from other kids about how their dad was dead or that they would tell them that they'd heard they'd find his body. The kids were slowly resigning to the fact that they were not going to get their dad back. They tried to make their peace with it. It had been six months and all hope were starting to fade. Jane eventually decided that if the house was being watched, she was going to be making some moves of her own. She hired a moving company to come with boxes and bubble wrap and rearrange the furniture and half pack some of it so it looked like she was giving up and moving away. When she did, the tone of the emails that she received changed. They began to drop the amount of money they were asking for. Okay, so they're getting more desperate now. Yeah. She tried to gather money from friends and businesses, but people were hesitant. Were they going to get themselves involved in something? Would they become the targets themselves? Eventually, someone came forward to Jane and offered to give her a large sum of money on the condition that they stay anonymous. Jane had also kept the amount of money anonymous, but has said that it's below $1 million. She had to collect this and count it in the bank. They were requested in $100 bills unmarked. She had to carry these through the town and not draw suspicion, even stopping to talk to people on the street, putting her bag down between her feet like it was a casual yoga bag. The AFI agent was still by her side, living in the house. Jane had an agonising wait until the kidnappers finally agreed. However, it had to be dropped off to them in a secret location with no police. Two brothers that worked on the ranch volunteered to drop off the money. Jane first required proof that Eduardo was still alive. They sent this proof to her via a photo of Eduardo shaven in a white t-shirt holding that day's newspaper. The two brothers were told to go to one location where they found a note leading them to another location with another note, like a treasure map of clues to various locations. They were told to put a white letter T on the side of their car. They figured this is probably to allow the car to be tracked and followed by the captors to make sure that it was a smoother and cleaner operation. Eventually, the brothers were led to the last location in Clue. One was to go inside the warehouse with a bag of money. They figured they may not receive Eduardo right away, but they did not expect what happened next. Jane and the police officer stationed at the house got a frantic phone call from the brother waiting inside the car. The brother who went into the warehouse didn't come back out. They kidnapped him too. Whoa, speechless. Well, Jane was left with no money, no husband, and now one of her employees was taken. She felt desperate. It took the experienced negotiations officer by complete surprise. He was so shocked that he broke down. One of the kids found him crying and asked Jane why he was crying. 
can you imagine seeing that as a kid, this police officer crying over your dad? Yeah, the guy that's meant to protect you, advise you, and basically get your dad back is broken down in tears, defeated in your house. It's got to be the worst reassurance ever. I can't imagine it. Well, Jane was glued to the phone, email, and papers, keeping an eye out for any sign of her husband or the hired man they had just abducted too. Fernando had his 13th birthday, and on a Dateline episode I watched, they showed him blowing out his candles. His wish was that his dad would come home. Oh, as any kid's wish would be. Mm-hmm. Well, the next morning, Jane was preparing the children for school in the kitchen, washing up the dishes from breakfast, when she noticed a frail man outside the window, just beyond the wall. She froze, terrified it was someone watching her. The man got a little closer until he was almost at the back door. Jane opened up the back door and couldn't believe this frail, limping, homeless-looking man was Eduardo. He almost collapsed into her arms. He wasn't able to speak very much. They were more like whispers. Jane couldn't believe it. Oh, so he's just wandering around outside. Mm-hmm. I bet you couldn't believe he was actually there, actually home. I know. Can you imagine seeing that? The children saw him too and they freaked out and ran to him. Fernando said when he hugged his dad, he could feel all his bones, like his hips and his ribs. It was just something he was taken aback by. But I mean, your dad's just come home alive, so it's not like you're going to dwell on it. Eduardo asked Jane for her banana pancakes whilst at the door. He said that whilst he was in the box in captivity, he had always dreamed of this moment. And in those fantasies, she was making his favourite banana pancakes and he wanted it to be real. Jane made those pancakes. That's tremendous. It's so nice. Well, Eduardo said when they released him, they brought him to a wall. It was a cemetery wall and told him to face it. They told him to count to 200. He was so terrified that he counted all the way to 200 without turning around. Well, yeah, every second, just in case. Mm. When he reached 200, he removed the sack from his head and looked around. He wandered to a bus stop and there was a man there. He asked for the directions to his town and the man confirmed that he was at the right bus stop. Eduardo had pesos in his pocket. Eduardo walked back up the lane to the ranch. That home stretch must have been so exciting. How long exactly was he kidnapped for then? Eduardo spent a total of 225 days in captivity. He lost 38 kilos. He said he was so shocked at his appearance as he hadn't seen himself in seven months. The first time he saw himself in a mirror and he lifted his t-shirt, he had to pull it back down because he couldn't believe it was him. Jeez. He had severe malnutrition, liver damage, three broken ribs, a concussion and severe stomach infections. Not to forget the two healing gunshot wounds. But slowly he came back to life, gaining weight and healing. Eduardo would follow Jane everywhere after that and he wouldn't let her out of his sight. You'd think that that's where this nightmare stops, but unfortunately for the Falsecas, it wasn't over yet. They were being watched. Oh God, Eduardo had returned, but basically the people who did it are still out there. There's so many questions left unanswered. Who did it? Where were they? Would they be caught? Would she ever get the money back? Would they ever be safe again? What happened to the man she'd hired who had also been kidnapped? Now Jane and Eduardo had to negotiate for their employee that had been abducted. The captors became even more aggressive and threatened to kill the whole Valseca family, including the abducted employee. They had to go to the police again and ask for help, but they were told they had to move country. They could only take what they could carry, leaving that previous paradise behind them. They lost everything and it had to be done in secret. They went to America to start all over again. What happened to the employee? They set him free three months later with no ransom at all. What? That's so weird. Poor guy. Three months of that. Mm-hmm. Well, they eventually returned three years later for a TV interview, but it had to be in secret and they had armed guards with them. The house was exactly as they'd left it. All their clothes in the wardrobes and plates and cupboards. 
They visited the school that she'd helped set up to see a few friendly faces and invited some very close friends to join them for a party at the ranch for a final time to bring their ordeal to a closure and leave the house on a good memory rather than a bad one. Oh, very brave move. I guess they had the feeling of this is still our house. Yeah. So they just moved to America and started a new life. Yes, they did. However, Jane eventually succumbed to breast cancer in 2012, just four years after the incident, aged 45. She truly believed the stress of the incident had worsened her health. It destroyed Eduardo and the family. Jane was a hero and a role model. She was such a firecracker. Eduardo said it was so much harder to lose her than the kidnapping. Just one thing after another for this family. It's so sad. It really is. Rest in peace, Jane. Yeah. Uh, did they ever find out who was behind this heinous act? The family resigned to never finding out who did this. However, in 2017, they found them, but more by fluke. Oh, wow. Okay. If you thought this emotional roller coaster was over, you were wrong. Because we have one more crazy chapter in this story. It's about to get all kinds of wild up in here, so strap in for the conclusion. I'm ready. In 2017, a cab driver was asked to take a parcel to a location by a strange man who had offered him 10 times the fare to deliver it. The taxi driver immediately thought it was a bit weird, but started to really lose his shit when the man started to follow him in the car. So he panicked and called the police. There had also been a series of taxi drivers going missing at the time, so he was not risking anything. The police asked him to pull into a petrol station and wait. He pulled in and the man following him pulled in too. The police descended on the man and arrested him. The taxi driver opened the package and it was a human finger. Yeesh. Raul Escobar was arrested on the scene. He was the man who gave the package to the taxi driver to transport. Once arrested, Escobar made a phone call to a house in a modern housing estate where the owner of this finger was being held captive. He was heard to say, clean the box. They released her. She was seen by neighbours walking down her street with her hands still bound. Her name was Nancy Michelle Kendall. Escobar was arrested and charged with her kidnap and ransom. Who was Raul Escobar? Well, he was on the PTA board of the school that Jane and Eduardo had set up as a trustee. But Raul was not alone in this. He had an accomplice, Ricardo Salamanca. I'm going to take you back a bit in Raul Escobar's story because, dude, when I researched this, it blew my mind. <laughs> Raul and Ricardo were friends from Chile. They were part of a guerrilla group and no stranger to a kidnap scenario. Ricardo had been arrested and found guilty in 1992 for the kidnapping of a newspaper heir. Sound familiar? Mm. The heir, Christian Edwards, was released after five months and payment of ransom. He also murdered right-wing senator Jamie Guzman in 1991. Ricardo received two life sentences. Done and done. You'd think that, but like I said, it's wild. Okay. So on December 30th, 1996, a hijacked Bell helicopter, normally used for tourist tours, swooped down on the yard of a maximum security prison in Santiago, the Chilean capital, and whisked away Ricardo and three of his criminal buddies, one of whom was Raul, in a specially crafted metal basket lined with bullet-resistant material that dangled from the helicopter. Shut up. A breakout that got global attention. It was humiliating to Chile's still fragile government. Raul and Ricardo disappeared from sight, despite being on Interpol's wanted list. Where did Raul and Ricardo go after this movie-style prison break? They went to San Miguel, where they took the names Ramon Valencia and Esteban Tamayo. They blended into the community, which allowed them to plot their next series of kidnaps, 
Eduardo's being one of them. The two of them blended seamlessly into society, where their South American accents didn't arouse suspicion. At one point, Raul and Ricardo, under the names of Ramon and Esteban, opened a cafe in town. When it came out that they were behind all this horror, the people in the town couldn't believe it and were in a state of shock. They were well-behaved, well-mannered men who helped out and were part of the community, involving themselves in activities like the PTA board. After Raul was taken into police custody, his wife fled to Spain but was subsequently arrested, as was another female associate who was arrested back in Chile. Ricardo, his girlfriend and his two kids initially fled to Chile. Then, a little while later, they went to France on fake Mexican IDs. For reasons that weren't clear, they were detained for 12 days at Charles de Gaulle Airport, then released. They were both arrested a few months later. Both Raul and Ricardo have pled not to be extradited to Chile for trial and sentencing, claiming it'll be an unfair trial. Remember, they're still wanted for offences there, like breaking out of prison in the most action movie-esque way possible and humiliating them. <laughs> they're going to be in big trouble when they get home. <laughs> well, Raul now sits in a Mexican high-security prison on kidnap charges for the kidnapping and finger-severing and ransom of Nancy, but protests his innocence and blames local mafia for framing him. As of 2019, Raul was sentenced to 60 years in prison. The judge said that what he was wanted for in Chile was irrelevant and that when he'd escaped the prison, he had a chance to start a new life and take a different path, which he did not take advantage of. Fair. Yeah. However, the Chilean government have made it clear they will not give up in trying him for his crimes in Chile, his homeland. As for Ricardo, well, Chile have been trying to haul his ass back to face up to those crimes, but France keeps denying it and they, as they don't recognise Chile as a nation of human rights but he is now out and about after a few years in prison. He also wrote three books. One was called The Great Rescue, about his prison break. He also protests his innocence and claims to know nothing of the kidnappings. They had no evidence to convict him and claims it was a political media plot, stating, do you think they would have given me asylum if I was involved in those kidnappings? His family and friends basically vouched for him and promised that he wouldn't do anything shady. And he lives as a free man in Paris now. Sacre bleu. <laughs> I just want to refocus our last words to talk about the Valsecas. Jane, before she passed, wrote a book called We Have Your Husband. You can get it online and I imagine in some bookshops. She never got to find out who kidnapped Eduardo and ruined their lives. That is so sad after all she went through. Yeah. She never got to know who it was and they were so close to them as well. I'm sure it would have made her sick. For sure. Dateline recently did an episode as well, where a chunk of our research came from. There were also a lot of articles, and a chunk of newer information came from Spanish articles I had to translate. You can watch them tell their story on I Survived as well. There's a wealth of information out there in its various forms. Eduardo and the kids now live in America. However, I won't give any more details than that because I don't really want to give any current information on their whereabouts, just in case. I know Raul is in jail and Ricardo is protesting his innocence, but I'm taking no chances. Anyway, that was the story of Jane and Eduardo Valseca. That was intense. If you want to hear more, please subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave us a review. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you can find us at Not Me, Not Today Podcast. Or check us out online. Just head to www.notmenottodaypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to send us an email at notmenottodaypodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, stay alive. Bye. Bye. Not me, not today podcast.